Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we discuss the news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and joining me today will be Dr. Sophie Couchman. She's an honorary research associate in the history program at La Trobe University, and she's also the curator of the Australian Chinese Museum in Chinatown, Melbourne, which brings us nicely to our topic today, the history of Chinatown in Melbourne. This podcast was recorded live on the streets about a week before the Chinese New Year. Here's Sophie Couchman. I find Chinatown a really interesting space because I think there's so many layers to it. Obviously, now when you walk along the street, you're looking at something that's a pretty typical, a pretty cliched kind of Chinatown that you might see in lots of places around the world. You know, there's stone lions, there's decorative archways, there's lots of Chinese restaurants. But Melbourne's Chinatown, I think, is particularly special and not necessarily unique because it does actually have a lot of history that sits behind it. This has been a Chinatown since the Gold Rush period in the 1850s. So when Chinese are first arriving, they're coming and docking on the, on the Yarra, first arriving to Melbourne during the Gold Rushes, just got off the boat after several months' travel. They come to lodging houses that are in, that are in this area, actually in Celestial Avenue, which is uh, right down near Swanson Street. And in fact, when they first start settling there in lodging houses, it's actually a lane that doesn't have a name. And after a year or so, it becomes called Celestial Avenue. And Celestial was a term that was used um, to describe Chinese. It became quite a derogatory term because it was used in, in negative sort of contexts. But the idea is that the emperor is the, the heavenly representative and Chinese are the other, you know, fall under heaven and that's where celestial comes into, into being. As lodging houses when these people arrived, they came, they bought their picks and shovels and travel goods and then they headed off to the goldfields. Mm. And so this space here, it's not a goldfields era place really. It sort of grows to its largest extent post gold rushes. So from the 1870s, 1880s, around the turn of the century, is when it's at its real peak. And it's, it's a very complex place. You've got Chinese newspapers, you've got a whole lot of Chinese associations, both the traditional ones that are set up in the, during the goldfield era, and then more contemporary ones that are engaging with contemporary Chinese politics. So is, is a Chinatown, I mean, this is 20 years or so after Melbourne's been founded, so is it, is it going to be intentional back then, or is it just going to be something that grows organically? How did that happen? Oh, it's, it's an organic process. Mm. And I think it's a fairly natural human response to coming to a place that's different. I mean, Earl's Court in London is where Australians kind of group. And of course, not all Australians go there. That's right. And so it's described as a Chinese quarter very early. You've got people you can speak to, there's people you can get advice from, of course you're going to stay there, it makes a lot of sense. And people who can point you towards goldfields. That's right, that's right. And you can team up with people and go with groups and, yeah. and all that sort of thing. So once the gold rush is over, it's not just Chinese, it's everyone actually on the goldfields. They start moving into the cities, they're looking for employment opportunities. This is when Chinese start moving into market gardening in a really, in a really big way. Chinese newspapers and these Chinese associations. And these associations are important because they're still active today and a lot of them have premises in Chinatown. And this is one of the things that I think is what makes Chinatown a really complex place in Melbourne. Because on the one hand, it's everything that's a bit tacky and a bit crass 
about Chineseness and Chinese culture. But on the other hand, there's really genuine um, Chineseness mm. in the space. Should we go for a walk? Yeah, in let's do. Which direction? We're just at the at Cohen Place, where there's a great big enormous archway that was gifted to the city of Melbourne by Jiangsu Province, which is our sister state. And actually, on this block here, used to be what was called the Munster Arms, which was an old pub, but it was occupied by the Chin family, and there were quite a large number of children in the Chin family. They were involved in the Young Chinese League, established the Young Chinese League, which was an association for young Chinese people to get together and socialise. They had a football team, they ran debutante balls, they had picnics, they did this kind of thing. And one of the things they also did was bring in some Chinese dragons. So we're heading down towards Swanson Street from that archway. And we've got number 109, which at the moment is a shop that's selling um, duty-free material for Chinese tourists. One of the things that I think is quite funny about what's happened to Chinatown over the last few years is that it's a Chinatown, but there's increasing numbers of these duty-free shops that are selling Australian goods to Chinese tourists. So in a funny way, Chinatown has become very Australian <laughs> in that respect. But this building is interesting for two reasons. One, because if you go down the laneway, there's an entrance to the Chinese Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang. They still operate, it's the Victorian branch. There's also a New South Wales branch and a branch in, in Sydney. They took over this building around 1921 and they renovated the facade of the building. Mm. And if you have a look, you can see some of it. You can see where some decorations have, have fallen off. And if you go into the museum, you can see some photos from when it was first built. And it looked space age. It had these extraordinary little turrets at the top, beautiful decoration. And it was designed by the Burley Griffins who designed Canberra. It's extraordinary because it looks really space age. And I think that that was deliberate. When the, when the Kuomintang, when the Chinese Nationalist Party formed back in, in the 1920s, they were looking to be modern. They were looking to find new ways to be Chinese. And this building symbolised everything that was new and different and unusual. Okay. Walking along Chinatown, there's lots to distract you at ground level, particularly people making dumplings. But you need to look up and the buildings that you can see here are just absolutely extraordinary. So the one that's got Shanghai Village, which is a very popular eatery with people, is one of the two buildings that's on the Victorian Heritage list. That building was put on the list in about the 1970s and I think there's some buildings that need to go on that were, the facades were designed in the 1970s. For example, the fabulous Orchid Garden restaurant facade. I mean, that's a facade you're not going to see again in a hurry. It's chinoiserie, really over the top. So how quickly is Chinatown changing them because I mean Melbourne never seems to sit still from one month to the next so is there a lot of turnover going on in this in Chinatown can it change from month to month like that absolutely and I think at the moment I've been kind of looking at and walking down Melbourne's Chinatown for probably close to 20 years and at the moment the rate of change is is phenomenal there's restaurants and businesses turning over all the time it's a product of the growth in the Chinese population and the Asian population in in Melbourne is it a struggle to retain the, the Chinese aspect of Chinatown then? They're still Chinese businesses. Yeah. You know, the duty-free shop that I pointed out at 109, that'll be a Chinese business. Yeah. And if you go to some of the, you know, the restaurants and things, they might be an Asian business, but you might find that they're run by 
by Chinese or Chinese Australians. Although that again is changing also as Australia's immigration changes. You've then got things like Chinese medicine. So we passed one up on the corner where the, where the archway is, very well respected, and they've just opened up there recently. But there's this Chinese medicine centre here that does massage. There's another one around the corner in Russell Street. There's been Chinese medicine in this street for as long as I can remember. You just said this one around the corner in Russell Street. How much does Chinatown leak out? Well, it's an interesting question. So it changes. It waxes and wanes with the population. When I talk about the peak of Chinatown around the turn of the century, you're looking at it extending from Swanson Street right up to Spring Street. Yeah the lanes that come off and then over into the Little Lawn and Lonsdale Street behind the State Library. You can call of that broadly Chinatown. It's got a very dominant Chinese population, but there's a lot of other people that are also operating at the same time. If you look at San Francisco, I think it was a much bigger area. There was just a bigger Chinese population. But Melbourne's Chinatown was always smaller. The core of Chinatown has always been from sort of Swanson to Russell or Swanson to Exhibition Street and the lanes that, that come off. The thing that I think is very interesting now is that we only know this is Chinatown because there's archways. There are Chinese and Asian restaurants and businesses over the whole of Melbourne CBD and over the whole of Melbourne. And that's a wonderful contradiction that exists. Yeah, I, I am kind of curious if uh, you know a lot of people still consider it Chinatown or if they even would if these arches weren't here. I don't think things have to be hard and fast. Yeah. The archways and the labelling of Chinatown as a Chinatown now is also, as, as I was saying, alluding to before, is also it's a marketing ploy. It's yeah. about promoting Chinese business. I suspect that by calling it a Chinatown, you encourage more businesses to open here because it's... It's a recognised place where people know they can, they can go. There's two Asian grocers here. So if you're in the CBD, you know you can come here and there's supermarkets. I mean, memory is very powerful too. There's still a lot of people who have strong memories of this place before the 1970s when, when immigration opened up. And for them, I think they'll always look at it through a, that Chinese lens. What Chinatown means to each of those people is going to be different. Can we talk about the immigration policy and how that kind of thing changed Chinatown during the early 1900s, say, in that yep. era? Immigration restrictions, I mean, we've still got immigration restrictions, play a big part in, in what's going on. Restrictions were placed on Chinese immigration during the gold rushes in Victoria. Each colony was slightly different. And then at Federation, you know, very famously, the Immigration Restriction Act was put in, put in place. What was interesting about that from an, from an immigration perspective is prior to that it was only Chinese who were targeted. The Immigration Restriction Act broadened that to be anybody. The dictation test that was part of that process could be applied how you, how you wished, yeah. basically. Yeah. The population didn't immediately disappear. One of the things that's interesting about those restrictions is they go to an enormous amount of trouble to ensure that Chinese who have been in Australia, who have been law-abiding, who have been living here for a long time, can still remain here. They can leave the country and they can come back in. The huge immigration files that historians might come across or family historians might come across are the files of people who were allowed to be here. But documentation, certificates, all had to be issued so that they could be distinguished from anyone who's new. So basically the laws were about, we don't want new Chinese, but we're happy to keep the ones that we've got. So it took a while for 
those policies to have an impact. You probably start seeing it in Chinatown, there's a, there's a decline around the 1920s and the 1930s, but you also have different things starting to happen. Chinese immigrants, that you've got multiple descendants now, they start disappearing into the historical record a bit more. Chinatown itself starts getting smaller, but it gets smaller for a range of reasons. So there used to be banana ripening rooms all along this street. But when the Queen Victoria Market opened, there was a lot more space. So they all moved there. Yeah. Celestial Avenue, there were little houses there where people lived. There were kids who grew up there, played in the streets, went to local schools. They moved out and they moved into the suburbs. And that was what was happening to central Melbourne. Central Melbourne was changing from a place that had residents and light industry into a business district, which is what it is now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so by the 1970s, you've got a real, you really notice, it's a, it's a very small community in this space. And a terrific example, in fact, if we, have we walked past it? No, we haven't yet. There's a beautiful old church here, which is the Gospel Hall, which is one of my favorite buildings in the street on the corner of Heffernan Lane. And I heard this wonderful story about this church. When you got to the, the 1950s, 1940s, there's a very small congregation here. It's an Anglican, now uniting church, but it was Anglican for a long time. It was so small that in fact the Presbyterians were worshipping here as well. And people would, would come there with maybe be half a dozen regular worshippers. When immigration was opened up again between the 1950s and the 1970s, the population had grown so much and the new immigrants that were coming in also were bringing Christianity with them. And so it went from having half a dozen people coming to worship to having so many people. People were queued, were all milled outside the front of the hall. Yeah. They set up a speaker system and people were, f were all packed upstairs listening to the speaker system to the point where they struck a deal with the Wesleyan Church, which is on Lonsdale Street, where they would do their main worshipping there. The other thing that happened was it was a church where people were worshipping in Cantonese because the early immigrants were Cantonese. But the new immigrants were coming in were speaking Mandarin, speaking other languages, and they're going, well, we want a Mandarin service. And once you have enough, you go off and you set up your own church. There's about five or six churches in Melbourne that trace their origins to this little unassuming gospel hall. Yeah, it's quite quite a small bit of space. I like, I like what they've done with the real estate, though. They must have packed a lot of people in there. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's open and it's worth going in. It's a lovely little building. Coming up here, we have the Numponsoon Society. We have a blue plaque. Building, yes, a blue plaque. So Numponsoon is a district association. So what that means is that people who came from the Samyup district belong to this society. These district societies operated a bit like in sort of insurance and social welfare at a time when those things weren't really part of what the government provided. They helped you with translation, they helped you buy tickets to go back home, they shipped your bones back home when you died. Oh, wow. They provided a space where people could get together and socialise. They had, as I say, this shrine. It's a blended kind of spirituality. 1860, so Melbourne's 30, and uh, here's Celestial here's Avenue, Celestial which, Avenue which you were referring to before. So what you're describing here about Chinatown seems to be very much a... I can't help but notice how community-oriented this is. I imagine people came here just to, just to catch up, even if they weren't living here. Or... Lots of people remember the Chinese vegetable hawkers in Melbourne who, in the 20th century, would deliver vegetables to the door. And they would go to the Vic Market very early in the morning, pick up their produce, or the market gardeners would drop it off, and then they'd come to Chinatown and have something to eat. 
The stores were often clan-based stores. Clan is basically the family name. So you might be, it might be the Chen family general store. And if you were from the Chen clan, then you would go to that store. And they sometimes have a cook on staff who would, you know, just if you were from that clan, they'd make you a cheap meal. There were cook shops and little cafes along here too, but there was a mixture. And the other thing I should point out too, is that not everyone got along. We're not talking about one community here. And it's just the same today as it was back then. And there were divisions within the community. People disagreed over all sorts of things. The, the parade's going to come up here and I, I suppose it, it ends outside Sun Yat-sen in the courtyard there. Well, the dragon comes out of the, comes out of the museum. He's, he's due to come out about 11.30. He'll come out through the big archway in Cohen Place, then turn left and then he's doing a figure, a sort of figure eight. Yeah. So going along, along Russell Street and down and then back up in. And he actually, he backs into the museum. Yeah. I have to say, it is a really exciting thing to come and see him. Yeah. It's, it's a daggy thing to admit because you kind of go, oh, dragon parade, yeah, right. But then you come and there's the crackers and there's the drumming and he's just beautiful. You must go past him every day going, not long now, dragon, yeah, not yeah, long yeah. now. We're very, we're get, very get fond of him. Get some fresh air. Yeah, there's a, little, there's a little altar that's used as part of the awakening ceremony for the, for the dragon and there's often a staff member who will light the incense in the morning and pay suitable respect. That's Dr Sophie Couchman, an honorary at the History Program at La Trobe University and curator of the Australian Chinese Museum in Chinatown, Melbourne. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast of La Trobe Asia. You can subscribe to this podcast in both iTunes and SoundCloud. Please leave us a review there and tell your friends about the podcast. You can follow both myself and Sophie Couchman on Twitter. Sophie is at Sophie Couchman and I'm at Nightlight Guy. That's all the time we have today on Asia Rising. So until the next episode... I'm Matt Smith, have a happy year of the monkey, and thanks for listening.